Hello, Government 249. Uh, we're here to talk about Du Bois. WV Du Bois' desk was on. I've already, um, in both Wednesday and Friday sections, I've already given a little bit of a, a kind of background on Du Bois' life and a little bit of context for his thought. Um, the one thing that I want to say is that when we jump in on Chapter 5, and this is to you, Professor Sullivan, as much as to anyone, um, I think that the thing that's preceding four chapters really have told the story of Du Bois' disillusionment um, or growing disillusionment with like science as an as a way to solve racism. Interesting. Okay. Right. And so the the part that I chapter five continues this but I think that chapters one through four since I'm not making you read that I think it's it's good reading. You'll you probably enjoyed reading chapters five and six. Chapters one through four are just as good. Um, and uh, what I think you see is this real tragedy of a young, intelligent man thinking, like you watch him w walk through this like sad realization that racism isn't just ignorance. Right. right, that it's right. more than just ignorance. Right, right, that there's something right. deeper there, and so this is kind of continuing that um, process of describing Du Bois's disillusionment here in chapter five, mm -hmm. and so we're gonna we're gonna come out through the other side of that disillusionment with science, and we'll see sort of what's on the on the other side of it. So that's the sort of relevant context, just so you know, okay. um, Professor come, Sullivan. What came before? All right. Oh, I was going to say, just so you know, this is the this is the autobiography that Du Bois wrote when he was seventy-two. Okay. Uh, the last time that you and I talked about Du Bois was his early text, "Souls of Black Folk," which had lots of autobiographical material. But this is an old man looking back yeah. on his life, right? And he realizes, as he said in "Souls of Black Folk," that the sort of central concern that he's been working around in whatever capacity is trying to understand the concept of race, or the race concept, as he calls it. Okay. Okay? And that's the, what this chapter is titled, is like the concept of race. Okay. And so it seems pretty central. Central. Okay. Central. Um, and it starts, it, it starts off following all this autobiographical stuff, and we'll continue to be a little bit autobiographical. So just jump on in, and we'll start talking about Du Bois. All right. So on page 50, he says... The first thing which brought me to my senses in all this racial discussion was the continuous change in the proofs and arguments advanced. No sooner has I settled, had I settled into scientific security here than the basis of race distinction was changed without explanation, without apology. Yeah, so this little section is where Du Bois is talking about like, okay, so race is something we understand scientifically. Okay, okay, I will learn about the scientific understanding of race. race. I'll okay. get a fucking PhD uh -huh. in this uh -huh. stuff, okay? And then, oh, oh, I think I got it. And then they come along and say, oh, race is actually not, it's not scientific, it's cultural. Like, yeah. race is culture, you know what I mean? And so Du Bois is like, wait, a minute ago, it, it, was, was, science. it was science, and now it's like, Culture. Anthropological culture stuff. I, I don't understand. Like, what are you talking about? So, so now was the science being chipped away at by other scientists, which forces 
this to have to be pushed into cultural terrain or what do you know what causes the scientific switch here? Um, well, one thing that causes the scientific switch is you get a kind of, um, I mean, to the extent that people think this is the time when anthropology is emerging right. as a okay. professionalized line. This is a time when sociology is emerging. Political science and economics are all emerging as separate social sciences. And one of the things that happens is you start to get these social, you start to get, especially from anthropologists, some of this like social scientific arguments for the fundamental equality of all races, right? Okay. That, that people like Franz Boas and other anthropologists are just like, well, I mean, these are just different humans. Like this, like the races are different little geographical variations of human humans, beings, right? right? Um, and everyone's equal. And uh, um, there's also, I suppose, in this particular time, I mean, there's not much on the sociological side of things that would be right. pointing toward racial equality at this point yet. All right. So some so he's it's not necessarily that the science is being chipped away at by other scientists, though maybe, I don't know. But that also there's just now this there's opening up other fronts of inquiry which are maybe pushing how we understand race. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's right. I suppose that's right. Anyway, anyway, I was just trying to get my head in what yeah what's happening in the period. I know that's maybe not as central to what you guys are talking. All right, I'm going to keep moving. Yeah. 51. Despite everything, race lines were not fixed and fast. Right, this is, mm -hmm. I mean. Mm -hmm. Within the Negro group especially, there were people of all colors. Right. Right, so Du Bois is kind of like, well, they call everyone black. Black. But that's not really like it, not everyone is black right. that gets called black, right. right? And so this makes me think that when you're talking about race and you're trying to like make assertions about how one race is like this or that, maybe you're not on super solid ground since you don't really have a clear boundary around this right. fixed group that you seem to be talking about, right. Right? right? So he's starting to have this dawning realization. Right. Well, part of it is from these shifting explanations of what race is. Right. Well, part I, of it. I suppose even some of this is that even in the scientific community, the basis could be changing when I relook at that quote there. But yeah, like there's <laughs> nothing of this seems to have a strong foundation. Right, right. Intellectually, I mean. Intellectually. Like as a, yeah. Okay, 52. Nothing that he's encountered yet. Right. Okay, 52. There is, of course, nothing more fascinating than the question of the various types of mankind and their intermixture. The whole question of heredity and human gift depends upon such knowledge. But ever since the African slave trade and before the rise of modern biology and sociology, we have been afraid in America that scientific study in this direction might lead to conclusion, conclusions with which we were loath to agree. And this fear was in reality because the economic foundation of the modern world was based on the recognition and preservation of so-called racial distinctions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So 
What do you get out of that? What are you focusing on there? Well, I mean, that there's not a biological or a sociological explanation, right? He's dissing the sort of Boaz as well as the, or mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know Boaz, mm-hmm. that's maybe, uh, he's canceled too, right, Boaz? I don't know. I don't think so. No, he's okay still? I think he's still okay. Anyway, so we're like, we're like. I could be wrong about that. Check, you I know. I don't know. <laughs> you got to check with your local anthropologist. I'm not an anthropologist. Um, okay, but we're, he's like saying that like none of the biological or sociological explanations of these racial differences holds any weight. And what actually holds weight is an economic yeah. explanation of racial distinction. Now, I feel like you glided right past the first part of that, though. Okay. Um, there's a fascinating mankind and intermixture. The whole question of heredity and human gift depends upon such knowledge. So, I mean, I guess that, like, he's kind of like, yeah, there's a lot of different people. A lot of different people have made babies with a lot of other different people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's, like, you know, a human gift to sort of know our heritage. Yeah, and yeah. The, yeah, that's yeah, but that also that this is something that warrants some kind of real like that. Du Bois is is saying that this question of the different peoples of the world deserves careful study. Okay, I see. Right, yeah. like like it's we not should. a problem to think about people's heritage and people's cultural intermixing or racial intermixing or yeah, and we should study the hell out of it. Right. Right? And we should study it perhaps in a way that exposes what he says at the end, that, like, we should study it despite our fears that in so doing we might discover something about the economic foundations of our world. Right. Well, but also I think it's, like, it's a difference between, I mean, he starts this passage with what's celebrated as intermixture. Mm -hmm. And he ends the passage passage with the racial distinctions Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right I mean which mm -hmm. is like you know just what's being celebrated versus what is propping up an economic system or Mm -hmm. different concepts that both are about race but Mm -hmm. or in fact one is about boundaries and one is about intermixture Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And that becomes important throughout this chapter. Right, should I keep going? Yeah, keep going a little bit because uh, we're going to get a little bit, well, we're going to skip over some of his story about his personal family history. But All right, well, here we go. 52 still. We have not only studied race and race. No, no, no. Read that again. Sorry. There's double negatives there on purpose. Oh, sorry. Okay, 52. We have not only not studied. Sorry. Okay. We have not only not studied race and race mixture in America, but we have tried almost by legal process to stop such study. It is for this reason that it has occurred to me just here to illustrate the way in which African and European have been united in my family. There is nothing unusual about this interracial history. It has been duplicated thousands of times. But on the one hand, the white folk have bitterly resented even a hint of the facts of this intermingling while black folk have reconciled, oh, have recoiled in natural hesitation and affected disdain in admitting what they know. Mm-hmm. So what Du Bois is going to say for the next seven pages is going to describe his own personal history, including his white ancestors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And his point in doing so is kind of like, well, we all, all of us who are, categorized as black people 
living in North America, nearly all of us have white ancestors. Right. So, right. okay, who's black and who's white? Right. 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 That's yeah. and and yeah. So that's the that's the that's what is being set up here. And he's talking a little well, bit. It's of sort of interesting in this last passage, where he says, "Okay, so white folk have bitterly resented even a hint of this fact." Uh, okay, right. That's like seems to be unsurprising, given that mm -hmm. this racial hierarchy. In fact, I expect he will go on to talk about the economic foundation or what this is being used for. So of course, like they're going to want to solidify a, a distinction. But then you get the next part, while, it's, uh, while black, the very end of this passage, while black folk have recoiled in natural hesitation and affected disdain in admitting what they know, which I mean is sort of another interesting thing of like, I mean, to some degree, these are family relations that are not joyous, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe didn't feel like, a, what would he say above about the human gift that like of heredity kind of, right? Like this very well, likely was a result of rape and didn't feel super gifty, you know, like, mm -hmm. and so that you get on both sides, like, the dominant group wants to preserve this hierarchy or this, like, distinction because it's useful to maintain their own power and hierarchy, but that then for the oppressed who might be able to use something like this rhetorically, it also is, like, a kind of unpleasant, you know... And also, there is also a sense in which, I mean, Du Bois is writing this in 1940, and it's it sort of peak Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. Maybe not quite peak Jim Crow, but this is the year of poll taxes, literacy right. tests, et cetera. Right. The, the concept of a black person claiming some white ancestry might be also a dangerous proposition right, also. for that person, yeah. right? Yeah. And so not only not only does it dredge right, it, up... Old violence, but it may incite new violence. You got it. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. Um, and nevertheless, Du Bois is like, but, I mean, come on, y'all. Like, we all, we know, all this. know this. Yeah. Let's just stop. Like, why why are we unable to talk about this? Right. And one of the, one of the things that he's referring to there about the sort of not only have we not studied this is like the way in which Du Bois's attempts to study um, the difficulty that Du Bois had in finding support for his, for that Atlanta University right. finding support for so, the study of black life and black culture. Right, 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 right. Is that this is like, you know, as he describes in earlier chapters where he recounts a little bit more of his conflict with Booker T. Washington. Mm -hmm. It's like white philanthropy is like, stoked to support Booker T. Washington. Right. Booker T. Washington is super happy to be the gateway for all white philanthropy to the black right, community. Obviously. And uh, consequently, like, Du Bois's rigorous empirical <laughs> study is just like right, no. completely shoestringed. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I'm sure there are other ways that we could examine. I would love to know exactly what Du Bois is referring to when he says by almost legal processes, I suppose this has to do with um, ways in which people's heredity is shielded right. um, legally or quasi legally. Right. I would love right. to know what that means. I don't. Right. I don't have the reference top of top of mind, and um, yeah, wasn't able yeah. to track anything down super 
Yeah, at the fingertips. Um, but I assume that that's what that means. Right. All right, so uh, we're going to skip over a little section, seven pages in the text, which in this text, is these are pretty dense pages, so it's pretty long family history. Sure, sure. Um, the only thing that I want to point out here is just the difference between how Du Bois is able to manage his family history and how Douglas is able to manage his family history. Um, just thinking about these two autobiographical pieces right. from Black America, I just want to sort of flag that difference. Um, also flagging that difference as as you know, recognizing the way that the distance that Du Bois has from slavery. Right. And and just emphasizing that that, that is a really um, important and significant uh, feature of Du Bois's biography that shapes his thinking. I mentioned it in class both times, but I just want to make sure we're doubly emphasizing this, that Du Bois really was pretty far from slavery. Right. Um, even though he was born just after the Civil War, Right. His ancestry is pretty far from slavery. Right. They were still enslaved, to be cl <laughs> to right. be clear. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Du Bois's own personal experience is very far from that. Right. Right. Okay. So on page fifty nine, one thing is sure, and that is the fact that since the fifteenth century, these African ancestors of mine and their other descendants have had a common history, have suffered a common disaster, and have one long memory. The actual ties of heritage between the individuals of this group vary with the ancestors that they have in common and many others. But the physical bond, i.e. shared physical characteristics, is least, is, is least. least, and the badge of color relatively unimportant save as a badge. The real essence of this kinship, kinship is its social heritage of slavery, the discrimination and insult, and this heritage binds together not simply the children of Africa, but extends through Yellow Asia and into the South Seas. Mm -hmm. So Du Bois starts this by saying, you know, I now I began to realize that these scientific and these sort of cultural explanations of race were bogus. Right. And, you know, in so doing, like, one of the things that occurred to me was the way in which our shared mixed ancestry makes it really difficult to explain race as some biological right. or even cultural fact for that matter right. in the way that maybe anthropologists would understand culture. Right. Okay. And then what this all leads him to is a concept of race that he's just described here. Right. Which is, how would you characterize it? I mean... It's not biological. It's a, it's a kinship based on a long experience of oppression. Mm -hmm. I mean... A shared history. A shared history, but also a shared present, right? Mm -hmm. Presumably, mm -hmm. yes, yes, I mean... Yes. Because the, it's the social heritage of slavery, but also the discrimination and insult, which presumably is about the present moment. It's about the lived experience in mm -hmm. America in the present. But then this part, the heritage binds together... Oh, so, but then also, like, the racism of people, of Asian people. He's still talking about in the U.S., though, presumably, right? Uh, du Bois is kind of a pan-Africanist and thinks, actually, that European imperialism um, has actually created a kind of global African diaspora which shares this. Like, Du Bois gets really heavy into pan-Africanism. Okay. And, and pan colorism but really he, right yeah that's yeah i think that's and he thinks that basically white european imperialists um are 
screwing over everyone else. Right, trying to enslave most of the world or at least economically exploit them. Okay. Right, and so in a sense, what Du Bois is kind of saying here is that like, you're really working with like, I mean. Well, he's probably thinking what, at this time of India? Certainly. When he's writing about like the British in India. The South Seas, certainly. The Yellow Asia and into the South Seas. Right, so he's like drawing a line. But I mean, this is also, I think, a little bit of the tearing down of the both that kind of anthropological and the scientific sense of race, right? Because if he's putting the children of Africa with the people of Asia, right, and like clearly it's an using economic these like colors, this it's is an, an economic, economic and political yeah. position. Yeah. So this is what I really like: is Du Bois here gives us a way of understanding in 1940 race as a social construction, right? right. He doesn't use that term, no, right? right? And and as we're going to get further into this chapter, you'll see that he doesn't even really mean it the way that I think we often mean it when we talk about race as a social construction in the 21st century. Uh-huh. Um, we're going to get into some we're going to get into some crazy parts. Oh, I haven't I'm, told you any of this I'm stuff excited. yet. I haven't. We haven't even pre-discussed this, so you're going to be a little shocked. Amazing, I'm as I'm excited. as I hope the students were when they saw this, because it gets a little, it's a little uh, iffy, you know. So um, let's let's work through it. Let's work, work through, through some it. of this iffy let's stuff together. together. All right, should I keep moving? Keep moving. Keep moving. You're going right. to love this. Page sixty-three. I began to notice a truth as I entered southern France. So now he's talking about, I, I put this to the test by traveling. traveling. yeah. Okay. I formulated it in Portugal. I knew it as a great truth one Sunday in Liberia. And the great truth was this. Efficiency and happiness do not go together in modern culture. Oh, I like this. <laughs> so my alley. Going south from London, as the world darkens, it gets happier. <laughs> Portugal... This is, I, I can see why this is a little... It's a little iffy. A little iffy. I mean... Hang on, hang on. Just keep Portugal going. Portugal is deliciously dark. Many leading citizens would have difficulty keeping off a Georgia Jim Crow car. <laughs> but oh, how lovely the land and how happy a people. And so leisurely. Little use of trying to shop seriously in Lisbon before 11. It isn't done. Nor noon. The world is lunching or lolling in the sun. Even after 4 p.m., one takes chances... For the world is in the rocio, and the banks are so careless, and the hotels so leisurely. How delightfully angry Englishmen get at the damned lazy Portuguese. Right, right. Uh, so we're in some iffy territory here, right? Yes, obviously. And what is iffy about it for you? Just to, I mean, I... Well, I mean, this is a great stereotype of Latin Americans, which is mm-hmm. the, you know, and... Is is similar to this, right? Which is that and all sort tropical of like, peoples, all tropical peoples, right? Like that, you know, it's hot and they're happy mm-hmm. and lazy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, like, that's mm-hmm. like this like stereotype that is regularly used as a way to. And Du Bois is not know. being ironic here. To be clear, when you're reading this in the text, I mean, Du Bois, I think, is having a little fun with the angry Englishman. Oh, right. yeah, sure. But like, his, he's then not... Then they end up on the Jim Crow bus or whatever. Yeah, I mean, he's being humorous in some ways. I think he's, I think we're meant to laugh at how the Portuguese might get kicked off the, yeah. the white car. <laughs> I think we're meant to laugh at that in a dark way. Yeah. Is in the same way that I think we're meant to have a little dark chuckle about right, the, the damned English. lazy Portuguese right. line. In, yeah, yeah, in right, yeah. Um, 
but he's not being ironic. He's not like mm-hmm. he's he's describing for himself a true phenomenon here. Sure. And so so let's keep working with it a little bit. Like I mean, hang on. Okay. Hold your hold your thought for just a second, and then we'll get to it because I think it, we're we're going to just keep building on All this right. idea. Okay. Page sixty four. In an Africa and elsewhere, in two long months, I began to learn. Primitive men are not following us afar, frantically waving and seeking our goals. Primitive men are not behind us in some swift foot race. Primitive men have already arrived. They are abreast, and in places ahead of us, and others behind. But all their curving advanced line is contemporary, not prehistoric. They have used other paths, and these paths have led them by scenes sometimes fairer, sometimes uglier than ours, but always toward the pools of happiness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's very optimistic at the end mm-hmm. and probably wrong, but I like the other part of it very much, actually. Yes. Oh, right? yes. I mean, this makes sense that it's like thinking of other people as prehistoric and backward as social scientists did for really up through the 70s, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, is so this sort of sense like primitive men. And I mean, I know even now we wouldn't say primitive, right? But sort of the the idea that people from other places have already a- arrived. And I mean, this is part of the tension. And when we talk in, in comparative politics and um, the language that, you know, is like the developed and the developing world is mm-hmm. like getting at this so strongly embedded concept that like the people in other places mm-hmm. are like striving to get to where we are, Right. As opposed mm-hmm. to the fact that maybe in some ways, yes, that their shit is worse. And in other ways, their shit is just way better. Right. And like, well, and it's different. It's just different. And they have their own path that isn't necessarily trying to just mirror our path. It's not like a weak version, version of, of European our path. life. Right. Right. That it's its own thing. And like, that we could think about the ways in which our thing has things to offer that would probably help certain aspects of community mm-hmm. life. And in other ways, they have things <laughs> that might, you know. Happiness being happiness. one that he yeah. points out points here. Out. And so this is the part that I actually, that, that we, I didn't, I didn't include this here, but part of what he says either before or right after this quote, I can't remember exactly where it is on the page, but Du Bois is, is like, I mean, we could call these people lazy, but... That would ignore the fact that the Middle East and North Africa is literally the cradle of human civilization. And so peoples from their basically conquered nature and established human community. And so, like, maybe the fact that, like, maybe that was a lot of work. Yes, for example. Like, maybe establishing human culture (laughs) and, like, longevity you yeah. know, and agriculture and all this stuff. Like, yeah. Weirdly, in other places, it. people did that too, like the Incans and right. the Mayans and the Americas. They've, they've done this. Other native peoples. Right. <laughs> and so, so this idea of some kind of like primitive right. laziness perhaps yeah. doesn't hold water given history. Given, yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe but if I, we looked at it in a longer arc. Maybe in a longer arc. <clears throat> but I, I, I also like this. I like this. Um, one of the things that I like about this and I like throughout this is that in the, this section that where it gets a little iffy is that I do like the way that Du Bois 
is willing to acknowledge, despite previously just saying race is a social and political construction and economic construction, Du Bois is really clear that there are actual differences. It doesn't mean that everyone's the same. Right, 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 right. But that right. actually there are grand differences, beautiful differences right. between people. Right. And, yeah, what are you looking at there? Well, I was just wondering, though, whether or not he thought, conceptualized those differences as racial. And I guess I wasn't sure. I don't know if he, he would conceptualize use, them as racial. He doesn't use that at all, the term, I mean, the when he's talking about these. He's using national identifiers uh, in these passages that you've given me here. Yeah, um, and he, he calls them... He goes on to race when we get into this next quote on page 65, but I don't see he that. He calls them, uh, earliest in the chapter, he calls them the various types of mankind. Right. And I think so that for like him... he's making some kind of distinction. Oh, I think here. so. I think race is a political right. and economic category. Right. There is grand variation a in human mankind. existence, yeah. Sure. And there are distinctions, and that these are separate. And you can make value judgments about them. They're sometimes fairer and sometimes uglier, right? I mean, like, mm -hmm. it's not that everybody is, like, equally... Mm -hmm. It's equally flowers everywhere, you know? It's like... I think this is a really... This this is helpful in, in, in prefacing some later stuff to come, this idea of, like, being human is not necessarily to be, like... It's not necessarily a category that makes us free of value judgments. Right. Right. Okay. There are better. It's just yeah. Keep going a little okay. bit, and we'll see if we pick, pick that one up. All right. Page 65. I think it was in Africa that I came more clearly to see the close connection between race and wealth. The fact that even in the minds of the most dogmatic supporters of race theories and believers in the inferiority of colored folks to white, there was a conscious or unconscious determination to increase their incomes by taking full advantage of this belief. And then, gradually, this thought was metamorphosed into a realization that the income-bearing value of race prejudice was the cause and not the result of theories of race inferiority. That particularly in the United States, the income of the cotton kingdom based on black slavery caused the passionate belief in Negro inferiority and the determination to enforce it even by arms. Right. Right what? Well, the, the direction wasn't that people thought that wait, it was the cause and not the result. So it's like he's he's not he wants to say that like it's that not I mean I think about this like I said in so much of the stuff I've read it that's like this kind of like racial justifications of Hierarchy. Hierarchies are in the Latin American context. But it's like, it's not the, f it's not that people truly believed that these people were animals or had no souls or whatever, and that because they believed they had no souls, then they engaged Exploit in them. economic exploitation. But because they wanted to engage in economic exploitation, they justified that by making these people into animals with no souls, right? Mm -hmm. So that, like, the causal arrow doesn't go from, like, look at that animal to, like, now let's use them as a beast of burden. It goes, we need a beast of burden, and let's turn You'll this do. human into an animal. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's a, 
the racism is the result of an economically valuable relationship right. of inferiority. Right. Right. And that it's not there may be there may be a, a bit of a dialectic here that there was there was a was it conscious or unconscious? Maybe there's some belief that exists, I guess. But then it metamorphoses right. into a into a full on right. So I think there is. I think that there people may people do believe it to begin with, but in a more soft form, and perhaps in an unconscious way. In an unconscious way, and then by the time that they're be profiting off of it, it becomes a full full bore theory that. Has all kinds of justifications, yeah. et cetera. It shouldn't be questioned, blah, blah, blah. You got it. You got it. Yeah. And I think this is a nice, this is a really interesting move that Du Bois is making. Mm -hmm. And one that I think is pretty um, advanced. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, intellectually like pretty advanced. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Mm hmm. I mean, when I was in graduate, when we were in graduate school, do you remember that Charles Taylor wrote this um, short book that I think it was published in 2004 called Modern Social Imaginaries? Charles Taylor, by the way, is a white philosopher from McGill University. Very smart guy. But we were in this... Not the Charles Taylor, that was the Liberian. No, president of Liberia, no. <laughs> um, we were in this little reading group. Remember that, like, Cultures of Economies reading group we were in? Was I in it too? I, I think so, with like Larry Grossberg and maybe know, Pickles maybe was in there too. Went, oh, maybe I, I don't know. Anyway, go anyway, on. Anyway, the point being that in 2005, 2006, I was in a reading group at an advanced university and people were talking in hushed tones about this great, interesting idea that Charles Taylor had in Modern Social Imaginaries about all these alternative modernities. You know, <laughs> right, there were like these different right. pathways to modern life that like non-European places, you know, and it was yeah. like yeah, this like theoretical <laughs> framework. And it's like, uh, guys, like mm -hmm. 60 years ago, this, this dude kind of came up with it when he just reflected on his autobiography. <laughs> and his own travels. <laughs> yeah. Very advanced work here, very everyone. Advanced, All right. Advanced. So now we're starting to take a slight turn as we approach the end of the chapter. Um, okay. And I've got a really long quote oh for you God, here. Yeah, it's, very long. it's very long, but you'll see why I have excerpted it in full All as right. you as you go to the end. If you, uh, yeah, just right. you read it. I got it. Here we go. All right, this is all of page sixty-six, I believe. Okay, it is difficult to let others see the full psychological meaning of caste segregation. It is. It is as though one looking out from a dark cave in a side of an impending mountain sees the world passing and speaks to it, speaks courteously and persuasively, showing them how these entombed souls are hindered in their natural movement, expression, and development, and how their loosening from prison would be a matter not simply of courtesy, sympathy, and help to them, but aid to all the world. One talks on evenly and logically in this way, but notices that the passing throng does not even turn its head, or if it does, glances curiously and walks on. It gradually penetrates the minds of the prisoners that the people passing do not hear, that some thick sheet of invisible but horribly tangible plate glass is between them and the world. They get excited, they talk louder, they gesticulate. Some of the passing world stop in, curios stop in curiosity, these gesticulations seem so pointless. They laugh and pass on. 
They still either do not hear all or hear but dimly, and even what they hear they do not understand. Then the people within may become hysterical. They may scream and hurl themselves against the barriers, hardly realizing in their bewilderment that they are screaming in a vacuum unheard and that their antics may actually seem funny to those outside looking in. They may even here and there break through in blood and disfigurement and find themselves faced by a horrified, implacable, and quite overwhelming mob of people frightened for their own existence. Keep going. It is hard under such circumstances to be philosophical and calm and to think through a method of approach and accommodations between castes. The entombed find themselves not simply trying to make the outer world understand their essential and common humanity, but even more, as they become inured to their experience, they have to keep reminding themselves that the great and oppressing world outside is also real and human and, in its essence, honest. All my life, I have had continually to haul my soul soul back and say, all white folk are not scoundrels nor murderers. They are, even as I am, painfully human. Damn. Yeah. I mean, that's intense. I mean, it has a little, like, platonic kind of... I'm right. glad you spotted that. He's like going kind of Plato here. Full on Plato Full on cave metaphor. We're in, cave, We're in book we seven. Got... We're in book seven of the Republic. But we got a different kind of cave. It's a real different cave. A real different cave. Real different cave. I mean, still, similar. Still some similarities. Many similarities. But some pretty big differences here. I mean, in part, most people. In the cave and the. By the way, platonic. cave cave is Plato's Republic, Book Seven. If you haven't taken Gov One Seventeen, you would probably have encountered it there. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but one of the things about that story in Plato is that the people that are in the cave are um, watching shadows. Shadows, but. They don't. They perceive it to be the world, and so in a certain regard, they're like contented because they don't realize that there's more that they could be seeing, right? So like they're seeing this small thing, but but they're okay about it because that's all they know. Whereas this is a very different scenario where the people in the cave are actually looking out of the cave. Mm -hmm. But are trapped. But are trapped and thoroughly unable to communicate with the people on the other side of the cave. Mm -hmm. um, which is just like a, yeah. So it's, it's interesting in that regard, just in terms of like that he's dialoguing with Plato in this moment. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So that's interesting in and of itself. And then it's just a, a wicked, vivid, and sad explanation of oppression. Like... Mm -hmm metaphor of the experience of oppression mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah kind of relentless and it's relentless. growing intensity yeah yeah i mean by the end you're just like oh god this is so sad um yeah the entombed find themselves not simply trying to make the outer world understand their essential and common humanity but even more as they become inured to their experience they have to keep reminding themselves that the great oppressing world outside is also real and human and in its essence honest. Like, oh, God. Mm-hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. They're screaming in a vacuum unheard. 
and people on the outside just think it's funny. Like their pain is humorous and it's intense. Mm-hmm. Reading that in 2020 is... Uh, More people should read Du Bois. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I want to flag one thing really quick, which is an important part that... Yeah, sorry if I'm missing some of this. No, no, no. Everything, I mean, this this passage is, is largely, I mean, this is sort of a, this is, in my view, kind of like a Moby Dick of, of like, black intellectual thought, right? Like, it's like one of these... Touch point or something? Yeah, I mean, it's just like, you are just dumbstruck right. by... Du Bois as a writer here. Right. 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 Like, right. You're just it's dumb. beautiful writing. Like, you're just slammed like by this thing. Yeah. Right. Um, but the part that, I mean, obviously the fact that, I mean, I think that obviously the fact that we maybe heard very similar explanations um, in the post George Floyd protest this summer, like, I feel like I could turn on the radio. Right. And them interviewing someone participating in protest might be saying the same, like many similar kinds of things that Du Bois is saying here, right? Right. <clears throat> One thing I do want to flag that I don't think has been, I think Du Bois is especially, um, this point is especially important to him. This one about like the real gift that people who have been racialized as black in America have is this capacity to remind everyone of our shared humanity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that this yeah, is about that about Du Bois. This is uh that that this is a special this is a special gift. Right. Right. And that in a way, you know, I mean this is this is part of how Du Bois can construct an argument, though he never puts it quite so explicitly, but how Du Bois can construct an argument that is not dissimilar from um, from um, Douglas mm -hmm. in the, so far as like the moral the moral corrosion that comes right. from being racist yourself right. is losing the capacity of someone to reflect your own humanity back at you. Right, right. Yeah. Like that as you are, as you double down and, and dig further into racism, you close off the number of people who can affirm your humanity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. Well, and like, even the, I mean, I think about this and I think about, I mean, we were just having a conversation with, some of our friends about a book group, uh, like an anti-white supremacy book group in a Jewish community in a, mm -hmm. in a synagogue. And so we were talking about this and some of the challenges of trying to mm -hmm. have, you know, conversations about race and also thinking about how you ch change that from like a conversation into some kind of productive engagement and mm -hmm. you know and I it's like that this part is so striking of like the when even the people that pass by and aren't, don't stop and laugh he says this is like right this is here's the white oppressor like does not hear at all the screams or the whatever of the people in the plate in the cave 
or hear, but dimly. Mm -hmm. And even what they hear, they do not understand. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. It's like that that kind of, you know, the just the challenges of sharing experience across these mm -hmm. barriers, right? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And on both sides, right? I mean, Du Bois is having to what Constantly. continually haul his soul back, soul back, and say all white folk are not scoundrels nor murderers, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, this is a hard place for it's hard work for conversation, connection, you know. Mm -hmm. And that is how this chapter ends. Um, I still it's, have more stuff. There is a lot more. That's just one chapter. There were two oh, okay. chapters. Um, so that's the end of this chapter where he does that. Yeah, that's roughly the end of the chapter. Chapter seven, I'm sorry, chapter six is brilliant in my view. Um, I didn't, I don't have tons of it here for you. I've got the chapter kind of out of order. Um, but most of the chapter, the reason that I'm glad you noticed that Plato's cave reference is that the following chapter, chapter six, the, the majority of it is a kind of platonic dialogue. Oh, amazing. Um, du Bois takes one character and then he invents another character. The first, he has two dialogues, two short dialogues. The first dialogue is with a character that he calls Roger Van Diemen. Oh, yeah, you did tell me <laughs> which this. I, think you is, told me this. I told you this part, yeah, yeah. which I think is very funny. Um, very and then the second dialogue is with a kind of unnamed, privileged white gentleman. Okay. Say, so we've got a couple of pieces of that dialogue, a couple of snatches of that dialogue, but um, it was hard to excerpt and hard for us to talk about on the podcast. So I tried to okay. capture a few things that are that are um, that try to bring it to life. Okay. Maybe should I read this quote from sixty-eight or go on to the quote on eighty-seven? Yeah, you should read this quote on page sixty-eight. It's it's okay. actually in chapter six. Okay, I wasn't sure. So it, it shifts. Was. I think it shifts gears. Let me double check that. Yeah, it shifts gears in chapter six. Okay, so still on 68. A man lives today not only in his physical environment and in the social environment of ideas and customs, laws, and ideals, but that total environment is subject to a new socio-physical environment of other groups whose social environment he shares, but in part. Yeah, so this is a, a kind of an interesting, I think this is like a weird and interesting thing that Du Bois is saying here, which is like, when you talk about people's environments and how it shapes their, like, self, mm -hmm. you would be remiss to only think about the particular, the specific environment of, like, their own historical group, background, family, etc. Like, the fact that, but that you have to also, sorry, that you have to also include the way in which they make contact with other groups. Okay. Does this make sense? So, like, like sort of. the fact I don't that see so it just from this quote, but it's a little. You won't see it from other quotes <laughs> in this because it's not a central thing. Okay. I just thought it was really interesting. So, part of what so like imagine our city, Syracuse. I mean, I see it here. The like the total environment is subject to a different socio-physical environment of other uh, of other groups. Right. Yeah. Right. So just imagine for a second, like, our city, Syracuse, which um, is 27% uh, black, 15% Irish, 15% Italian, uh, the other 30% other. 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, and, and so like, and minority probably. Well, the census is probably screwed. But if the census was this is done, from 2010, right? But if our current census was done properly, we were set to be majority non-white. And from those statistics, you see that means many different. Mm -hmm. Right. All, all what Du Bois wants to say is that if you look at a city like this, mm -hmm. and you and, and and if you were to isolate any single individual, you couldn't just talk about their own their that Irishness. specific Irishness yeah. or Italianness or blackness, right. but that you would also have to think about that context that I just gave you right. about the kind of contact that they would be in with other groups. Right. That's all. It's just yeah, that yeah, we're yeah. always mixing. Right. Which is like this point that he's made over and over right. again is that like our lives involve contact with other groups. Right. Yeah. And I mean, not to mention they like you know. Not to mention our mixed heredity. That's what I was gonna yeah. say. Like the Italian, Polish, Ukrainian next door, right. and the. Right. So all that is just to say that that Du Bois emphasizes over and over again the way that we are actually always kind of mixing with other people. Right. And that that has important, like, those interactions and connections have their own way of shaping us. Right. Okay, that's all. It's it's a point that gets glided over, but I thought it was really interesting, and I thought it picked back up this theme that came through in the in the previous chapter. That's gotcha. all. Gotcha. Okay. That's all. So now we're skipping ahead, way ahead toward the end of the chapter. Um, go ahead and, and just jump. All right, so on page 87. The progress of the white world must cease to rest upon the poverty and the ignorance of its own proletariat and of the colored world. Thus, industrial imperialism must lose its reason for being, and in that way alone can the great racial groups of the world come into normal and helpful relation to each other. So Du Bois uses these platonic dialogues to arrive at this, like, uh -huh. anti-imperialist awesome. standpoint. It's, I love it. It's really interesting the way that it works up. The second dialogue in particular okay. aims at this, and this is a kind of concluding thoughts from his second dialogue in chapter six. Um, go ahead and read the next right. one, too, on 87, also same on 87. page. It will not be easy to accomplish all this, but the quickest way to bring the reason of the world face-to-face -face with this major problem of human progress is to listen to the complaint of those human beings today who are suffering most from white attitudes, from white habits, from the conscious and unconscious wrongs which white folk are... Sorry, I got a page turn. Which white folk are today inflicting on their victims. The colored world must therefore be seen as existing not simply for itself, but as a group whose insistent cry may yet become the warning which awakens the world to its truer self and its wider destiny. Right, so Du Bois has used this Plato's cave metaphor in chapter 6. In this kind of, I'm sorry, a cave metaphor, not Plato's cave metaphor, but a cave metaphor. Right, right. In chapter six, and he's described in this way this particular gift that oppressed people might have to sh to remind people of their humanity, to remind right. oppressors of their humanity. Here, he's bringing that and expanding it into a wider frame of reference. Right. Right. And that this is a, and that then though, what was previously an ethical relationship in that after following that cave metaphor has become a political one, right? Because it's about the broader world. You mean, 
Well, and I mean, what he says there is like, maybe we should like think about how we could be sure to include the voices of the oppressed here and not just in tokenistic ways, but in ways that are taking charge of solving these problems since they actually understand the problems. So it's a political argument for greater political power of marginalized people and oppressed people on the, on the, on the reasoning that they actually possess the, the knowledge that we might need. To stop being assholes. Right. By which I mean imperialists. Right. Does that make sense? Imperialists, but also assholes, I think. Well, both, both. I guess I just mean to say, and this is the this is like the political dilation of that. Yeah, yeah. Of that other one. Um we are we we are going pretty long here because I think this I've got a lot of stuff for us. And so let me let's think about um Let's think about. Let's maybe read this next dialogue, okay. and and then we'll we'll pick one of the last two quotes. All right. So, do you want to be Van Diemen or do you want to be Du Bois? I mean, obviously Du Bois. All right, I'll be Van Diemen. <laughs> All right. Uh, but the state, the modern industrial state, wealth of work, wealth of commerce, factory and mine, skyscrapers, New York, Chicago, Johannesburg, London, Buenos Aires. This is what white people have made. I mean, that's, that's implied there. <laughs> this is the best expression of the civilization in which the white race finds itself today. This is what the white world means by culture. Does it not excel the black and yellow race here? It does. But the excellence here raises no envy, only regrets. If this vast Frankenstein monster really served its makers, if it were their minister and not their master, God and king, If their machines gave us rest and leisure instead of the drab uniformity of uninteresting drudgery, if their factories gave us gracious community of thought and feeling, beauty enshrined enshrined free and joyous, if their work veiled them with tender sympathy at human distress and wide tolerance and understanding, then all hail, white imperial industry. But it does not. It is a beast. Its creators even do not understand it, cannot curb or guide it. They themselves are but hideous, groping higher hands, doing their bit to oil the raging, devastating machinery, which kills men to make cloth, prostitutes women to rear buildings, and eats little children. Yeah, so like... There it is. That's sort of back to the... I feel like that goes back to that quote that we read a little bit ago, Mm -hmm. the different... That we were talking about as different modernities in a more modern yep. way, but like exactly right of like yeah, like great, you made this stuff, and like your citizens are living in like mm-hmm. drudgery and toil, and mm-hmm. like it's not beautiful, it's ugly, it's maybe not amazing. You've like made ugly, efficient things, and you've called it valuable. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I think that this is the part where this is the this is. In this instance, I think Du Bois is demonstrating precisely what he was just talking about on 87, about like maybe we could look to the darker races of the world who've been on the losing end. This is what, those are the terms that he right. uses. Yes, yes. Sorry. No, um, I, I, I gathered that from. And that maybe we could look to them to help solve some of these problems since they seem to understand it better than white imperialists understand it for themselves. Right. Right. Like the white guy's like, but aren't these cities awesome? Yeah. And it was like, I mean, as far as they go, uh, but yeah. like, yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So this, 
I just think this is a cool chapter. I think it's yeah. amazing. I love I All love the, the way I love the way that he plays with the dialogue form, right. and I love some of the lines that come out of the dialogue itself. Uh, go ahead and, and read um, seventy six. Yeah, this is good. All right. Indeed, the greatest and most immediate danger of white culture, perhaps least sensed, is its fear of the truth. I think least sensed. Sorry. Oh, perhaps least sensed is its fear of the truth. Its childish, childish belief in the efficacy of lies as a method of human uplift. The lie is defensible. It has been used widely and often profitably among humankind. But it may be doubted if ever before in the world so many intelligent people believed in it so deeply. We deliberately and continuously deceive not simply others, but ourselves as to the truth about them, us and the world. We have raised propaganda to a capital P and elaborated an art, almost a science, of how one may make the world believe what is not true. Provided the untruth is a widely wished for thing, like the probably Probable. Probable extermination of Negroes, the failure of Japanese imperialism, the incapacity of India for self-rule, collapse of the Russian Revolution. When in other days the world lied, it was a world that expected lies and consciously defended them. When the world lies today, it is to a world that pretends to love truth. Yeah, so this is another nice, um, I think, illustration of the of the kind of previous dialogue passage, right? Mm -hmm. That like we call something valuable, which, or we call something progress, which is clearly destructive of our humanity. Right. Right. And, and we love have, lies while we say we're obsessed with the truth. Right. Right. Now, I one feel like, oh, go God. ahead. No, I'm going to, I'm going to take it in the wrong direction here. Okay. One of the things that I wanted to point out here is just another way in which Du Bois is, is fucking around with platonic themes here. Um, the idea of like a noble lie is a right, critical right, part yeah, of yeah. Plato, like books three uh, right. and into book four of the Republic. So Du Bois is just like totally, mm -hmm. um, yeah. I mean, he's just in a full-on dialogue with Plato, and yeah. for me, that's it's like very fun. It's awesome. Yeah, and doing in doing some such interesting things with it, and such subtle things with it. Right. Like, there's a clear reverence for the document. There's a clear reverence for the thought, while also suggesting all of these holes that it misses. Right. And the way in which a world of racialized oppression, these theories need to be dramatically updated because they really yeah. miss important things. Right. Um, yeah. So I just love the simultaneous, the simultaneous like, yeah, drawing from and pushing yeah, back and pushing against. back. I mean, who oh. doesn't love that? That's great. Who doesn't love that? Great. All right, uh, we've got time for the last one because the last one's so good, okay. and I feel like it explains where Du Bois finally gets after he's done with science. All right, and like he, when he realizes it's not just ignorance. All right, page eighty-seven. The present attitude and action of the white world is not based solely upon rational, deliberate intent. It is a matter of conditioned reflexes, of long-followed habits, customs, and folkways, of subconscious trains of reasoning and unconscious nervous reflexes. To attack and better all this calls for more than appeal and argument. It needs carefully planned and scientific propaganda. The vision of a world of intelligent men with sufficient income to live decently and with the will to build a beautiful world. 
Yeah. So a couple things in this that that I like um, is just continuing. Uh, like I said, I mean, he's messing around with Plato here, right. who is obsessed in book uh, in book two of the Republic with the need to like tell good stories about the world, oh, right? right. Okay. And Du Bois is like, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, right. we need to have better stories because all these people are caught up in these shitty folkways and all of these like conditioned reflexes and long followed habits that if we could change some of those with like a better story about reality and living with it, maybe you just had like, maybe you lived decently, <laughs> not opulently. And maybe you wanted to build a beautiful world rather right, than an efficient I one. I had to read it a second time to actually, I had yeah, cause you were side eyeing that. That's all you give that the side eye. <laughs> it took me a minute. Sometimes like, Took me a minute to. But you don't just I like marinate in these texts like I do. Yeah, you know <laughs> well, I, mean? I haven't read this, <laughs> so. Yeah, I see it now, though, right? It's that. Well, because I actually think that your framing of it didn't doesn't jibe with my. Because you were like, what did you tell me that there's a framework at the very beginning that he like comes to see that it's not it's like not just ignorance. But I feel like. I don't actually, I don't think I would say that as an explanation of what he's saying here. Because, like, I feel like, I guess ignorance isn't the, it's like, I feel like he's sort of saying here that, like, this isn't, it's not that he's saying it's not ignorance. He's saying that this isn't rational. Like, okay, yeah, it's that sure. No, people aren't, people aren't, thinking themselves to racism, no. right? It's not like people were like, oh, I'm gonna mm. construct. I mean, some people were, and he's engaging with them at the beginning, which is the scientific idiots with the head, the phrenology, phrenology. and the like. So like, yes, there's this sort of like, there is this branch of like rationalizations of racism and race and whatever that he's dealing with because he too is an intellectual. And so he's dealing with these like intellectual you know, ideas mm -hmm. around this, but like for the most part, right, this, the white world isn't based on those scientific people that are like talking about head shape, right? That it's a matter of conditioned reflexes of long followed habits, customs, and folkways of subconscious trains of reasoning and unconscious nervous reflexes. Like yep. this is feelings. This is like gut reactions. And so, like, the solution to feelings and gut reactions isn't, like, a scientific study debunking phrenology, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, which may be good and necessary, like, but, but it's not that, right? And so there, what we need for is not, right, he says, um, not just appeal and argument, right? This isn't, like, one because you made a better argument than the phrenologist, right? It's one because you told a more convincing story of a world... You know, of intelligent men with sufficient income to live decently and with the will to build, build a, a beautiful, beautiful world. world. Like, it's lovely. And what's um, nice about that is the final, just as a, we're going to have to shut this down in just a second, even though I feel like I could keep going with this, um, is that the last dialogue that he has is with this, like, gentleman who is, like, goes to the Episcopal Church and he went to college and he was in a debate club in college and he just really wants to... Like he just really wants to live the life of a kind of genteel, you know, like rich guy. Like Sure. And 
and he realizes that that entire framework for living is built upon the exploitation of, oh, of the world. And so he comes, so in the dialogue, he comes to Du Bois and he's like, I don't know what to do. Uh. <laughs> and so Du Bois's conclusion is like, maybe what we need is to have people get rid of this stupid framework right. for constructing their life that like what happiness consists of is like going to the Episcopal church and having cocktails with your buddies and like being like a genteel rich, rich person yeah. with hired help. Like right. maybe that's not really like a satisfying fully human life. Like right. sure. We want to live decently. Yeah. Like we're not insisting on a culture of po or like a, a vow yeah, of poverty. Yeah. yeah. Right, but that like maybe don't build your whole sense of self around all that bullshit. Right, right. Your I, silver, your silver set, or whatever you yeah. call it. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I like that about I like that about yeah about um, you know, Du Bois yeah. here. And ultimately, one of the things that I think is nice about it is that like the question. Sorry to go back to this, but because Du Bois is playing around with it, I can't help but like rethink Plato here. Plato, uh -huh is like the question about uh, that is driving book two of the Republic is this question of like, why should we be good? Uh, yeah, right? Yeah. And what Plato says and what Du Bois is saying here is like the same answer, is that like you're not fully human. Mm -hmm. Your full humanity has not, you don't recognize even your own full humanity until you try to be good. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of what Du Bois is saying here. Yeah. But being good consists in this instance of like refusing in so far as you are able to participate in the exploitation and oppression of people of, you know, of non-white people. Right. So it's like such a cool Plato like yeah. dialogue with Plato. I mean, it's like, oh my God, I love it. I love it so much. It's so, see, it's so brilliant, you know? It is. It's awesome. All right. Um, we're going to have to end here. I, even though I, I I'd love to just keep going, but we should, we should call it a night. Um, this is great. Can't wait to talk about it. Uh, as you can tell, can't wait to talk about it with you all on Wednesday and Friday. <laughs>